0: Baby, how you doing? Hello, lovely. I'm having the most amazing time. Likewise. And I'm so fucking happy to be doing this right now. Likewise.
1: Full disclosure, both of us are pantsless.
0: <laughs> we are. We decided it was a pantsless episode. Yeah. It's late at night this time. We're not recording in the morning for once in like fucking, I feel like months.
1: Oh my god, I couldn't What was the last time? I would think it's more than months.
0: Definitely. I feel like the last time we recorded at night was when we recorded in person and you came over.
1: Oh, and I got drunk and I stayed in your apartment.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally, totally. It was the best. (laughs) I was like, did I just like tuck Monique in on my couch and was like, this is for you right now. Yes.
1: Also, so we're recording remotely as we do a lot of the time. Was Amy a joint a delight? And did she clock that I was very uncomfortable that the closet behind her was open? And she closed it because I was like, demons are coming out of that closet. Yes, she did that. I did because I don't deserve Amy in. That's why
0: <laughs> I don't deserve you. <laughs> We have similar feelings on this. I know we mentioned last episode we don't like things even just non-ghosty related to be opened like by a roommate or boyfriend who just leaves a cabinet or door open. Get out of here, close it. Get the fuck out of here. To be fair, that's Johnny's closet, which explains why it's open and not closed. Mm, Yes. Straight. Am I right? Yes. Girl. <laughs> but the whole time it was open, I literally was expecting the door to move and I like no. could barely no. look at Monique. I was like watching the door for the thing that was going to come scare the shit out of me, basically.
1: Yeah. 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 Girl, how's how's your week? Tell me all the things. What's happening?
0: My week has been great. Great. I have to give a shout out because today, day we're recording, is my mom's 60th birthday. Diana, the lovely. <laughs> diana the incomparable i adore her happy fucking birthday
1: i adore her i have i've only met her via the internet but diana thank you for bringing amy Traden, light of my life into my life and all of our lives you're a joy and a delight thank you thank you oh my god so happy that you exist and so happy that you sired
0: this exquisite woman <laughs> she whelped me i love it yes uh <laughs> I know. And I feel like I actually usually thank her every year for giving birth to me. And now I am remembering I didn't technically do that this year. Now I feel like kind of an asshole. That's always like my go-to is like, thank you. Yes. Yeah. I did, to be fair, text her at like, I was a minute late, but at 12.01 her time, I texted. Nice. Like, happy birthday. Got
1: you. So two days ago, incidentally, if we're we're on this train… It was my dad's 71st birthday. Oh, shit. Happy birthday, Roberto. Happy
0: fucking birthday.
1: Yeah. Also, he doesn't listen, nor does he know that this podcast exists. So... Girl, I mean, <laughs> same
0: for my dad. Sorry. I was like, if he actually does know about this and is listening to this right now, I'm sorry. Awkward. I yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Damn. Damn. <laughs> my dad is amazing. We're going to get some text messages after this. Like, uh, yeah, okay, thanks.
1: they like, do you have an abusive family? And it's like, I don't know how to answer that without Child Protective Services showing up. But no, my dad's amazing. And he... It's one of the few people in my family who has understood me and loved me for exactly who I am. Yes. So this is his 71st birthday two days ago. Happy birthday, even though you don't listen to this because you don't know it exists.
0: (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Uh, I love that we're weirdos that don't tell our parents things. This is great. No. Yeah, you know. I do think it should be said, in addition to being pantsless, we because it's the evening and we don't have to like do shit and go to work we like had a couple drinks before we started this episode so
1: girl i don't know how many drinks i've had
0: monique is having drinks because she is a classy lady was i pounding shots in the kitchen like 10 minutes before? no okay no no No. yes no. yes I
1: amy was. is having shots because she's a badass motherfucker <laughs> i don't do shots because i'm a weak bitch
0: that's where that is. No, I just like to expedite the process. That just seems like the most efficient way to get to this level. I mean, when we got on, I was like, Monique is like, seems very happy and little little drunky pants. And I was like, I want to be a little drunky pants.
1: <laughs> right? And she's like, I'll be right back. I'm gonna excuse myself into the kitchen to pound four shots of
0: tequila. Literally, I was like, hey, do you mind if I just like go do that real quick? I'll be right back. I never mind that ever. You didn't? That's a true friend right there, Monique. True friend. Fight or die, baby. Fucking soulmate. Fuck yes. Fuck yes. What about you, though? Do you have a scary, spooky, weird, what the fuck paranormal story for me? Maybe. I do. To entertain me? I don't need to watch TV shows, Monique, because I have you in my life to tell me (laughs) fucking crazy (laughs) stories. Girl, this is my subscription, my (laughs) subscription service. Thank you.
1: So, as you may recall, I went to New Orleans recently.
0: You did go to New Orleans recently.
1: I did. And I learned the story through French Quarter Phantoms, which if you go to New Orleans, that's a ghost story you should take because they're amazing.
0: Yes. You do them every time you go there. They're the best, apparently.
1: They are the best. But the thing is, I started a story from the latest tour of French of Phantoms.
0: Okay. And then decided
1: to go from my last tour of French of Phantoms in a story.
0: Wait, what? Okay. Yes. Did one inspire the other or you just like straight up switched gears?
1: I just switched gears.
0: I fucking love you. All right. Yeah. <laughs> you throw me for a loop. You're like, she expects one thing. I'm going to give her something else. Keep her on her toes. Well, because
1: I feel like the, la- the story I was working on was too similar to the last New Orleans story. So I was like, no, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. I feel that. Yeah.
0: Okay. I've been there. I can't do too many alien stories in a row. I tell you this. I try to space them out. I don't want to bombard you.
1: But I also know that nothing would make Amy happier than just doing like back-to-back, back-to-back alien stories.
0: I mean, if I could do them every week, I would. <laughs> is that weird? It's not at all. I try to throw like a ghost and a weird cryptid in there occasionally, but... I know. You do. Is alien my number one uno? Yeah.
1: I mean, I don't know if it is on the show, but I know in your heart it is, as me knowing you as a human being.
0: You know that there is a tiny alien living inside me. <laughs> you.
1: Yeah. There is a tiny alien living inside of you.
0: There might be a tiny alien living inside of all this. You don't know.
1: Maybe. I don't know. It would explain a lot.
0: <laughs> it would explain a lot. There's a couple people I know that I'm just like, hmm, mm. crab person? Maybe. Maybe. Most definitely. Most definitely. All right. Well, lay your fucking spooky New Orleans story on me. Yeah. So I'm
1: going to talk about the Andrew Jackson Hotel.
0: Oh. Mm -hmm. First uh, military governor of Florida, this guy.
1: Boom. So sources, French Court of Phantoms, as I mentioned, they're a joy and a fucking delight. If you're going to New Orleans, that is the tour to go to French Quarter Phantoms. They're incredible. NPR.org, grunge.com, Andrew Jackson Hotel.com, Ghost City OfficialData.org, and golden Fashioned Wikipedia.
0: Fuck yeah. I was like, I got really excited when you said NPR for some reason. I was like, ooh, okay. It's like legit now.
1: Legit. Capital A, capital F. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. I see you, Monique. Girl, girl, I fucking see you. How about that? <laughs> the Andrew Jackson Hotel at 919 Rural Street is one of the most desirable and most visited hotels in all of New Orleans. Located in the heart of the French Quarter and steps away from jazz clubs, world-class restaurants, and just one block away from the legendary Bourbon Street, the two-story brick townhouse-style property stands out among the other hotels in the area, with its 18th century furniture that decorates the guest rooms and main lobby, its elegant wrought iron balconies, and tranquil tropical courtyard shielding the noise and chaos of Berman Street. All right, sign me up. Let's go. Girl. Sounds beautiful. Yes, it is. The property is chock full of history, and in 1965, the building was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And it's also said to be one of the most haunted places in all of New Orleans. Of course. Of course it is. That's why the fuck we're in this game,
0: baby. I was like, you can tell me a story about a non-haunted hotel. Like, just describe the architecture. Get out of here. I would not have understood the assignment. (laughs) At the end, I'd be like, wait, is that it? There's no ghosts? Like, there's not a poltergeist or a fucking... It's just,
1: this is a, a hotel that was built. Okay, thanks. Bye.
0: I just thought it was pretty. I liked it. Thought you'd want to know about it. No, <laughs> it was
1: a nice, you know, quaint, if you will.
0: You know, like history? Okay, fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> to get into why that might be the case, let's get in our way, way back machine and head back to the 18th century, which was a rough time to live in New Orleans. <laughs> I'm like, let's not and say we did because no, thank you. Fucking literally, because it was rife with disease, death, and destitution. Every summer, the city would be ravaged by a yellow fever epidemic, killing hundreds of residents. And dying from yellow fever wasn't a great way to go. Oh, no. Girl. So I clearly did not understand
0: what dying from yellow fever was like. So let me let, me let you in on this. Oh, God, tell me. I have an idea in my mind, but I hope it's wrong.
1: I'm going to say it's probably not. It's probably worse than what you think. Oh, God. Just what I think. It always is, Monique. Right? The afflicted would experience a host of unpleasant symptoms, including jaundice, chills, nausea, headaches, fever, convulsions, and delirium. Oh, no. Wait, girl. In the stuff out of nightmares, the infected would start to bleed out of their eyes, nose, and ears okay no fucking thank you absolutely not absolutely not absolutely not
0: take me out an old yellow me in the back i'm not
1: absolutely not literally fucking facts old yellow me fucking hardcore it, the second that i start bleeding out my eyes can you old yellow me please that's all i want please yes please i'm making this a declaration to anyone the second I start bleeding on my eyes, please hold yellow at me.
0: Especially if it's the fucking 1800s where the remedy for this is like a hot poker up inside of me. Wait and pray? No, thank yeah. you. Yeah. I don't know. No, thank you. And right before
1: dying, victims would vomit partially coagulated blood. Oh. No fucking thank you. mm So death tolls from yellow fever didn't start getting recorded until 1817, but between 1817 and 1905- 41,000 people died of yellow fever in New Orleans, with 8,000 dying in 1853 alone, eviscerating one-tenth of the population and earning New Orleans the nickname of necropolis or city of the dead. Oh. Can you fucking imagine living in a place where they're like, yo, this is like the necropolis?
0: No. No. Also, like, let's go party there? Like, Everyone's dying. Fuck yeah. Right. I don't understand this.
1: No, no, no. And for the OG listeners, as you may recall from my story on the Porter House in Key West, Dr. Joseph Porter discovered that yellow fever was carried and transmitted by mosquitoes and that the disease thrived in warm, humid climates with dense populations, making a spot like New Orleans ideal for transmission.
0: Oh, yeah. It's like all fucking bayous and marshes.
1: 10,000 fucking percent. While childhood mortality rates during this time were exceedingly high, it was men between the ages of 15 and 40 who were the most susceptible to the disease, almost always succumbing to it, leaving their respective families without a head of the household. This was such an issue in 1792 that the Spanish colonial government opened an orphanage and an all-boys boarding school at 919 Royal Street for boys who had lost their parents to yellow fever.
0: Oh my God. Girl, girl literally Jesus. the stuff
1: of fucking nightmares and horror movies. Literally. This is real sad,
0: Monique. It is so sad. All right. Tell me more about everyone dying from yellow fever.
1: While the boarding school saw initial success, it was short-lived because on December 8th, 1794, the Great New Orleans Fire tore through the French Quarter, destroying 212 buildings. And while that sounds bad, this was only six years after the first Great <laughs> New Orleans Fire that <laughs> eviscerated the city, leveling Eight hundred and fifty-six buildings out of the city's eleven hundred buildings. That's why the architecture in the French Quarter is predominantly Spanish, because all of the French architecture basically got wiped out during the first two fires, and New Orleans was under Spanish rule during the
0: rebuild. That is fascinating. I don't think I realized that. Yes, that's fucking insane. I mean, it's a great way to eradicate disease, but like, it's a little much. Sure, maybe something else. Maybe don't light half the city on fire.
1: Yeah. 919 Royal Street was among the casualties of the second great fire, along with five boys who were trapped
0: inside. Oh, oh, it hit me that this is a paranormal story and we're going to have these little, like, ghosty boys. No, don't I mean. (sighs) I mean, yeah, that's, that tracks. (laughs) Is this your first episode, Amy? Like, hi, hello, (laughs) welcome to the fucking podcast. I'm sorry, have we like been doing this kind of for like a year and a half, a little
1: bit, maybe? I don't know, I don't know. I'm on board now, I got it. After the fire, a US federal courthouse was almost immediately built and remained there until before the turn of the 20th century where General Andrew Jackson, who later became the seventh US president, was held in contempt of court and charged with obstruction of justice. And we're going to take a little detour to talk about this story because it's actually fucking wild and, like, attention must be paid about it. Tell me. What? Girl, this story's fucking wild. So, during the War of 1812, also known as the Second American Revolution, Jackson arrived in New Orleans in December of 1814 to bolster the city's defense against a possible invasion for the British. Upon arrival, he declared martial law in New Orleans— No one was allowed to enter the city and no one was allowed to leave. In January of the following year, Jackson was victorious against the British in the Battle of New Orleans, granting him national hero status and a peace treaty between the British and the US was going to be signed. However, until Jackson received word that the treaty had been signed and ratified, he would not lift martial law. By March of 1815, Two months after his victory over the British, everyone was over the unnecessary lockdown. Citizens, local politicians, and even some of Jackson's troops expressed their growing displeasure and frustration. When some of the Creoles under Jackson's service registered as French citizens with the French consul Louis de Tussard asked to be discharged based on their foreign nationality, Jackson ordered all Frenchmen including Toussard, to be banished and depart to no less than 120 miles from the city limits. When State Senator Louis Luyar wrote an anonymous piece in the New Orleans newspaper challenging Jackson's refusal to release the militia after the British surrendered, Jackson discovered the author's identity and had him imprisoned. When the U.S. District Court Judge Dominic A. Hall signed a writ of habeas corpus on behalf of the senator. Jackson had the judge arrested because, fucking obviously, a military court ordered Senator Louis Arrier's release, but Jackson kept him in prison anyway. Judge Hall was banished from the city of New Orleans on Jackson's orders until a peace treaty had been ratified and the Brits had fled Louisiana's coastline. The future president also ordered the execution of six members of
0: the militia who had attempted to leave. What? Okay, bro. You're, like, banishing people like it's the fucking medieval times. Like, you're executing people? Like, what? Andrew
1: Jackson has actually zero chill. Like, it's like, what the fuck is happening?
0: Like, seriously? Yes, yes. Why are you being like this? Really? Come on. Like, is it? stop, like literally, yeah. it's just like, chill
1: out, stop, what the fuck? And the thing is, their deaths were not well publicized until the coffin handbells were circulated during his 1828 presidential campaign 13 years later. On March 13th, news officially reached the city. The peace treaty had been signed and ratified. Jackson immediately lifted the martial law and released Louis Allier from prison and allowed the return of those he had exiled, including Judge Hall. And Judge Hall came back to New Orleans like a bat out of hell and demanded that Jackson appear at the courthouse. And in what I can only imagine was the latest in a long string of fuck yous, Jackson arrived at his court appearance shabbily dressed as a civilian instead of an awarded general and national hero. Though Jackson requested a trial by jury, Judge Hall refused and slapped the general with a $1,000 fine, which is over $18,000 in today's money. Though many New Orleans offered to pay Jackson, whom they loved so dearly, he rejected the offer and asked that the people give their money to the widows and orphans in New Orleans who had lost their fathers, husbands, and brothers in the Battle of New Orleans. Jackson paid the fine, but in 1844, the year before Jackson died, Congress actually ordered that the fine delivered by Judge Hall be repaid to Jackson with interest. What? Girl, this is wild. He was awarded $2,700 or over $101,000 in today's money. No. Dude. Get the fuck out of here. Dude, get the fuck out of here. He was an asshole. You're getting paid
0: for your fucking power trip? No.
1: Yeah, it was like, he fucked up, and then it was like, he got fined for contempt of court. Because that's, yes, because we're like, hey, release this dude. And he's like, nah, that's contempt of
0: court. Yeah. Like, hi, checks and balances. We, we told you to do the thing. You have to do the thing. Don't be a dick.
1: Don't give a fuck if eventually you're the president. You're actually an asshole.
0: I can't believe they paid this man fucking money for this shit. With interest. Get the
1: fuck out of here. The courthouse was eventually demolished, and the current building that houses the Andrew Jackson Hotel was erected in 1890. So, as you can see, a fuck ton of crazy shit happened on this property. So it's not surprising that many guests claim that the building is haunted, but very specifically by the ghosts of the five boys who died in the fire.
0: No! Like, I knew, but like, you knew, you knew. This is not your first rodeo, girl. It's not, but I want to get off the bull, (laughs) Moni. The bull is five little ghost boys.
1: I mean, facts.
0: Okay. The
1: ghosts of these young boys have been heard playing in the courtyard in the middle of the night, with the sounds of footsteps and giggles being reported.
0: Oh, no. Ghostly giggles? Get the. Mm-mm. Nope. That's my nightmare. That's my actual nightmare. Yes. Like I'm one of those people that can't stand in movies when they have children singing like childhood songs in like a creepy way. Like Yes. Yes. That yes, yes. is the thing that I'm like, I need to leave the room right now. Actually, I'm sorry. I'm a little, I'm a little bitch for this, but I have to leave. Like I can't. No, no,
1: no. That's John Oliver did a thing about kids singing for Jacca. Oh no. I feel like it's the creepiest thing ever.
0: No, no, no. Like Bring around the Rosie comes to mind. Like, oh, I can't. Little kids singing that? Like, uh, absolutely not. I will power walk in the opposite direction.
1: No, that's a shant. Absolutely. No. No, no, no. The boys are said to be the most active in rooms 208, 107, and 109. One guest told the front desk that in her room the night before, she heard, quote, what she interpreted as cereal being poured out onto the ground Than the unmistakable noise of a childlike giggling. End quote. So here's the thing. The reason why I put that in quotes is that it's very oddly worded. Was there actual physical cereal or did it sound like cereal? But when you turn on the light, there was nothing there. And I searched and I Googled it and I couldn't find anything to clarify the matter. So I I don't know if it just sounded like cereal being poured onto the floor or if she woke up and there was cereal all over the floor. Okay. The Google machine was no help. Yeah. So I I put that in quotes because it was a very
0: odd... That's weirdly specific though, but I can also kind of like, I would say like picture that. It's like an auditory, imagine that in my mind. For sure. And that's totally fair. So I'm like, I kind of get where she's coming from with that. Yeah.
1: It's totally fair to be like, I know the sound of what this is, and it's this thing, and I turn on the lights and there was no cereal there, or I had cereal and then it was poured over. Like I'm very confused as to which, which of those two it was. Okay. But it was one of those two. Room Toy is said to be the most active in the hotel and believed to be haunted by the spirit of a child named Armand. There's some debate as to whether Amand died by being thrown off of the second floor balcony or if he died by suicide, throwing himself off the balcony. Oof. And also, as for that story, it seems to me that he's not necessarily of the five boys who, who died in the fire. I wouldn't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. What everyone seems to agree on is that Armand is haunting the fuck out of room 208. Armand's spirit has been known to wake guests from their sleep with his childish laughter. People staying in room 208 have reported being physically shoved out of their beds or have had their pillows snatched out from under them by an unseen force. And others have reported that while sleeping, they felt the covers being tugged down and as a cold caress skims their exposed flesh and a chill sweeps over their bodies. Mm-mm. No
0: Mm-mm. fucking thank you. Nope, absolutely not. Caress flesh? That, that Those two things should never be together in the same... No! No, the same thought. Get out of here.
1: Leave me the fuck alone.
0: I'm trying to sleep, motherfucker. And
1: in New Orleans, you partied all day. Yeah. You just want to go the fuck to sleep. <sighs> One guest even reported being awoken from his sleep because of the static noise coming from the TV. The guest wondered how the TV had been turned on since he had shut it off before closing his eyes for the night and had set the remote on the bedside table. He leaned over, grabbed the remote, and when the guest shifted up in bed, he aimed the remote at the TV and he saw the apparition of a young boy sitting on the ground in front of the TV. He froze, then screamed, and the apparition immediately vanished. Others have reported TV channels being changed without explanation. It isn't uncommon for guests who have checked into room 208 to ask the front desk for room change a couple of hours into their stay.
0: (laughs) Why are you still renting that room, Ben? Like, just make it storage or something. I don't know. I
1: mean, here's the thing. The reality is, which I'm going to get into later, on the landing page of the Andrew Jackson hotel website, they mentioned that the hotel is haunted.
0: Okay. So is this like the draw then? So it's a very buyer beware situation. Gotcha. I would just advertise it like, hey, if you want to stay in the haunted room, because you're into that, like room 208's available. Cool. Yeah. For everyone else, maybe like don't just volunteer that one.
1: Yeah. When the front desk attendant asks the reason for the switch, guests consistently say that while in the room, they experience a strange, eerie feeling that someone is watching them. Oh, no,
0: thank you. Bye.
1: No, absolutely not. Overhead lights are reported to switch on with no rational explanation. The faucets are known to turn on by themselves, which, as we learned two weeks ago, Amy may have debunked. Yes, Personal belongings are known to disappear, sometimes reappearing in another room, and sometimes never reappearing at all. While all this shit is very creepy and would knock off a couple of stars off of my Yelp review, Armand's ghost doesn't appear to be aggressive. He seems to be a little boy who likes playing pranks on the living. While it is unclear if Armand is the only ghost haunting room 208, The Andrew Jackson Hotel is also said to be haunted by the ghost of a woman, whom many suspect might have been a housekeeper in the hotel at some point in its long history. Her spirit is known to straighten towels, fluff pillows, and rearrange furniture to her particular liking. In the Andrew Jackson, it is not uncommon to re enter a room and find the chairs moved closer to the window or swapped around entirely,
0: which That would fuck my life up. That would really—I would not handle that well, no. I'd be like, goodbye. I'm (laughs) gone. Uh, I'd like an
1: early checkout, please. Thanks. Goodbye. Members of the cleaning staff have expressed their feelings of being watched while they go about their daily routine, with most suspecting the phantom housekeeper is the one responsible. Disembodied footsteps have also been heard climbing the stairs and back down at all times of the day and night. This apparition has even been spotted frequently in the lobby and in some rooms on the second floor. According to the various accounts of those who have stayed in the Andrew Jackson Hotel, the ghost of the hotel's namesake has remained as well. Guest reports seeing the former U.S. president's actual apparition roaming the hallways, especially on, you guessed it, the second floor of the hotel. So obligatory devil's advocate time. The faucet turning on by itself was debunked by Amy's shower ghost. Given that the hotel was built in 1890 and the faucets can turn on by themselves when the plumbing is old. Yep. And while I certainly hope that the plumbing has been updated since 1890, it's still a fucking old hotel. Yeah. Also, It seems a little odd that Andrew Jackson would be haunting the hotel just because it's named after him.
0: Like, did he die there? Yeah. What?
1: He didn't live there. He didn't die there. He went to court there and was
0: a raging asshole. Yeah, he doesn't give a fuck about that place.
1: Yeah, I mean, and here's the thing. I also think it's noteworthy that the only thing that was mentioned about his haunting is that he wanders around. When I did my story on Ghosts of the White House, the ghost of Andrew Jackson was seen by both Mary Todd Lincoln and Harry Truman both said that he stomped around and cursed up a storm. That being said, if someone said they saw the ghost of Andrew Jackson at the Andrew Jackson Hotel, I'm going to believe them. Yeah. There's a lot of shit that I've seen and experienced that I don't have any way of proving other than my word. So here's the thing. Ghost City Tours, who claim to be, quote, the world's largest and best ghost tour company, end quote, claims that they came across an article dated from the 1850s that lists that the property at 919 Royal Street was one of the few buildings that survived the, quote, great conflagrations of 1792, when all that portion of New Orleans was devastated, end quote. Allegedly, the article goes on to say that in 1803, Louisiana Purchase was signed. The property was converted to the federal courthouse with minimal alteration. So, To obligatory devil's advocate, the obligatory devil's advocate. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) (laughs) I love you.
0: She's doubling down on the devil's advocate. I love it. Shit is just a bit too
1: vague. If you came across an article, why don't you have the exact date or even the exact year that the article was printed? Why don't you have a copy of said article on your website? Yep. Why did you do a paranormal investigation at the hotel in 2017? They posted an article about the investigation on their website and talk about booking room 208 and how no matter how many different keys they were given, they weren't able to open it. And then when their investigator slash voodoo priest entered the room, he said a prayer and when he removed his wooden cross from his neck, the cross immediately broke in half. There is a picture of the broken cross on the website, but that's it. They claim to have had EVP sessions and spirit box sessions that prove their claim that the building never burned down, but we only get transcripts of it. No actual audio. Mm, Yep. So here's the thing. Everyone has something to gain from their version of the story. That the property is haunted is literally mentioned on the landing page of the hotel's website. Then you have ghost city tourists who claim to be, quote, the world's largest and best ghost tour company, end quote. They have a vested interest in being the ones who know more than anyone about this kind of thing. And the thing is, I just kind of find it sus as fuck that while debunking that the fire ever took place, they still include the hotel in their ghost tour. And even held the, quote, First ever public ghost hunt, end quote, of the historic building in 2017. While there seems to be some debate as to which otherworldly guests roamed the property and how they got there, it seems that everyone can agree that the Andrew Jackson Hotel is one of the most haunted hotels in all of New Orleans. And that is the story of the Andrew Jackson Hotel in the French Quarter of New Orleans.
0: Holy Shit, which you may have just busted as a fucking...
1: I don't know. To me, it seems like it's an orphanage that burned down and then got turned into a courthouse and then turned to a hotel. That's what everything that I can provably find says. Okay. There is one company that says otherwise and then cannot prove their findings to be so. Okay. It's very weird to me to be like, no children died here, but we need to do
0: ghost hunts here for the dead children. Even though there weren't any that happened here. That's very odd to me. That is very odd to me. I was like, I don't know why I don't really feel comfortable staying in a place that was once an orphanage. I don't know why that like fucks with my brain a little bit.
1: No, I'm I'm never, I'm not staying in this place ever. No, no, I've walked by it a couple of times and I'm like, oh, cool. That's there. That's where a bunch of children
0: died. Keep walking. Yeah. No, thank you. I mean, I don't want to handle an adult ghost. Girl. I definitely don't want to handle child ghost.
1: Are you speaking to my soul right now? Yes, I am. No.
0: That's not for me.
1: No, thank you. You enjoy that for you. Love that journey for you. Not for
0: me. No. Nope. I was like, what? A hotel was built in like two years? Let's go to that one. 1890? Yep. Let's go to that one.
1: Oh, no. Yeah. I'm like... Yeah, I know. Well, here's the thing. If you've ever been to New Orleans and and if you're you're remotely sensitive, there is just such a vibe to it that it's alive with otherworldliness. Okay. And I don't know how to describe it except that way. And if you know, you fucking know. And if you don't feel it, great. I wish I was you because it's a weird thing to feel. Let me
0: fucking tell you. All right. <laughs> I'm like in shock now. Yeah. Is it just like you get cold? You get chills? What, what's your...
1: It, it is...
0: Just a feeling?
1: For me, and, and I don't know if anyone feels this type of thing, the closest that it comes to is the feeling of anxiety.
0: Oh, the infrasound. You got it.
1: You inherently know it's not anxiety. It is a different thing. But it is a very similar to anxiety, except, you know, it's not anxiety.
0: Okay. That was a very good description. Yeah. I liked that. Yes. I don't like anxiety. I don't want any of that at all. But there is a a feeling
1: of, for me, of, of panic, but also knowing that it is not self-inflicted that it is externally inflicted upon me okay whereas anxiety i know it is it is self-inflicted it's like i know this is me having a thing whereas my time in new orleans uh a lot of places i've gone are just not it's like this is not a me thing this is an exterior thing that is doing this to
0: me so creepy I can't really say that I've ever felt that about a place, honestly.
1: The first time I went to New Orleans as an adult, I went with Christina and I felt this baseline of anxiety the entire time I was there. And the only time I felt chill was when I went to the cemetery, which is insane.
0: (laughs) Oh my God, I love you so much. Like, I'm going to lay, I'm going to like chill with these graves. I'm good. I, this is my happy place. Just take me to the field of dead bodies, please. But
1: it's that thing that I'm like, I'm there and I'm like, I I'm nuts because I don't <laughs> I feel
0: okay here. All right. Are you ready? For a little bit true crime.
1: Girl, I was fucking born ready. Let's go.
0: Yes, I know you were. I know you were. All right. So I kind of hinted at the story a little bit last week.
1: Yes, you did. And I have been waiting with breath that is baited for what the fuck this story is about.
0: I am so excited because I had not heard this and this was really crazy. And I kind of feel like I should have. So maybe I'm the only one who missed this whole situation, but Mm -hmm. hopefully this is new for you guys as well. So, as I mentioned last episode, I started listening to the podcast. What Went Wrong, which is hosted by Lizzie Bassett and Chris Winterbauer. I listed a bunch of episodes i have seen, but I left out two. It was a two-parter episode. So it's episode 17 and 19, and it's about Twilight Zone, the movie.
1: Yeah, girl. Shit got real.
0: Shit got real. I didn't realize. I don't know how I missed this, but I was unaware of the situation.
1: Yeah, girl. It gets real dark real quick. It gets real dark real quick.
0: So obviously, Monique is familiar with the situation, but hopefully this is new for some of you guys. So other sources, APNews.com, LATimes.com, Wikipedia, and IMDB.com. Twilight Zone the movie was a 1983 horror anthology movie that was based on, obviously, the popular sci-fi show, The Twilight Zone, created by Rod Serling. The show was known for pushing boundaries with its social commentary, cleverly disguised as science fiction, which allowed them to say and show things that would previously have been banned by the censors. There were a few iterations of the show prior to what is considered the original series, which ran from 1959 to 1964. The movie was released in 1983, and the show was rebooted two years after from 1985 to 1989. Sorry, but the reboot was trash. Yeah, it was not well received at all. No, no. It was also, again, most recently rebooted again in 2019 with Jordan Peele, which I have not seen. I don't know if anybody has, but...
1: I saw like two episodes. It was fine. I mean... You can't beat the original. It's really hard. No. And here's the thing. Even with the original, so fun fact, I have a very niche scene from The Twilight Zone hanging up in my bathroom.
0: Do you? Oh my God, I love that. Of
1: course I do. Of course you do. It's like an artistic rendering, but it's like... This is episode two of The Twilight Zone. If you know it, you know it. But if you're a fan of the original Twilight Zone, as I am, because I spent the bulk of my life on 4th of July and on New Year's Eve and on New Year's Day watching the Twilight Zone marathon on Sci-Fi. Fuck yeah. The best episodes were the ones written by Rod Serling. Yes. They were always the best episodes because they were the most poignant and the most Uh, had the most social commentary. Yeah. And And he wrote a fuck ton of the episodes too. I think he wrote like... He wrote so many of the episodes, but you could see the huge drop off between the ones that he writes and the ones that he doesn't. It just doesn't land the same way.
0: No. No, definitely not. Yeah. And... As I'm sure Monique knows, in addition to all of the shows, there's also the amazing ride at Disney based on an episode of the show called Tower of Terror, which was my fucking favorite as a kid.
1: Have I told you this? That I'm a total baby about this ride? What? I'm a total baby about it.
0: No! I'm
1: a total... So here's the thing. The... Disney World, because it no longer exists on Disneyland, the Disney World Tower of Terror ride, the concept is in the 1930s, there was a hotel. It got hit by lightning, and there, was go- there were people in this elevator, and they disappeared when it was hit by lightning. So good. I love it. This incident created a frenzy where people flipped their shit, and they just bolted the fuck out of the hotel. So... When you are waiting in line to go onto the ride, you're going through the hotel, and there's luggage that is left there because people were so afraid to leave. And it's usually about an hour wait because it's a pretty popular ride. So it is the psychological torture that happens to you while you're getting ready to go on this ride. Oh, yeah. Which, when you go on the ride, it is to get on the elevator, right? And… I am never someone
0: who will volunteer to go on this ride. It is Donna's favorite ride. Oh my God, Donna, let's fucking go. I will ride that <laughs> non-fucking stuff. I love it. My
1: favorite experience going on this ride is, so me, my dad, and my younger brother are the more adventurous in my family. My mom and my older brother are not. They don't like anything like that. So we're getting ready to go on this ride because my younger brother is like, let's go. I'm never going to volunteer to go on Tower of Terror. But if someone else is like, let's go, I'll be like, okay. So. Noted. We're going. <laughs> so we're me, my dad, my younger brother, and we're going on this ride and we're waiting on this line. And the thing is the la- the last stretch of the line is the boiler room
0: <gasps> of the hotel. I actually had somehow forgot about that. It's fucking so creepy and amazing. It's
1: so creepy. It's so psychologically fucked up. So good. It's, you're, you're fucked up, right? And I, of me, my younger brother, and my dad, I am the wimp of the three of us, for sure. So we've been waiting an hour in this line. We've been going through this hotel. We have been seeing this luggage that has been left there because people are like, fuck this. We are in this boiler room for like 30 minutes and we go on this ride. We, we go to sit in the elevator. And my younger brother is the last person in. And he goes to sit in. And he's like, I'm sorry, I can't do this. <gasps> and he goes to turn around to leave. And then, <laughs> you know, they don't pay them enough, truly. Disney should be unionized. But that's another, another fucking story. But the actor slash usher person looks at my brother and is like, are you going somewhere, sir? I love it. And he's like, no. And my brother sits down when he was ready to fucking bolt from the ride because he was terrified. Oh my and we God. sit down to go on this ride where we know we're going to be dropped 13 fucking stories on this fucking elevator. At minimum.
0: It's so amazing. <laughs> I can't believe he tried to bolt. They were like, uh, sit down. All I can really remember from Tower of Terror was the first time I rode, it was me and my cousin. And we're literally exactly two months apart from each other. Mm. Yeah. And this is my mom's sister too. Yeah. So he's on the inside. I'm on the outside. They take the picture, obviously, when yeah. you're dropping. Oh, no, no. And they go, we go downstairs. All the parents see it. And they start dying laughing because... My cousin, Lenny, has the like quintessential, terrified, screaming face. And I am like stoic bitch, like literally just like super tense. And they were like, she wasn't even scared. And I was like, you have no idea. I was literally petrified with fear to the point that my face wouldn't move. And everyone was like, oh, she's not scared. She's so cool and calm. And I was like, yeah, totally. That was, yeah, that was a situation. Yeah. No, he was scared. He's the scaredy cat. (laughs) I'm the brave one. It was like, nope. All right.
1: So we're getting it. We're getting into the shit though.
0: We're getting into the shit. We're going back to Twilight Zone, the movie, not Twilight Zone, the ride, which we, I knew we were going to spend several minutes on because. We had to. Yes. Yeah, we had to. So back to Twilight Zone the movie mm-hmm. it throws me off because it's not the twilight zone which is what the show was it's twilight zone correct which already you're fucking it up different it was produced by steven spielberg and Jod landis who both also directed stories in the film mm. the anthology consisted of four segments only one of which was a new story the other three were just rip-offs from the original series yep which is pretty fucking lame
1: Yeah. 10,000%. It was lame. Come on, dude. Like, whatever. Get it together. It's a fucking Twilight Zone. Figure it out.
0: Yes! Be original. Write your own shit. Come on. Give us something new. Each of the segments was treated like their own short film, and each one had a different director. Spielberg directed one of the remakes titled Kick the Can, while John Landis wrote and directed the only original contribution to the movie, the very first story, which was titled Time Out. Oof. So, a little background on John Landis. He was born in Chicago in 1950, but relocated to LA at four months old and grew up in LA. He said he saw the movie, The Seven Voyages of Sinbad in theaters when he was eight and had loved it so much that he immediately went home and asked his mom who the person who makes the movies was. She told him the director and he immediately knew that that's what he wanted to do when he grew up. He didn't go to film school, but instead tried to find any work in the film industry. He took any job he could find and worked in practically every role on set at one point or another. He was a PA, a dialogue coach, a stunt double, just to name a few. Any job he could find where he could work on set, he would take in an attempt to work his way up to directing and just learn as much as he could. And because he had worked in all these different positions, Landis felt like he understood every aspect of every job on set, which sounds great in theory because you're thinking like, okay, he's super relatable. He gets it. He knows where we're coming from. But there's also some potential hubris attached to this as well. Being basically that like, I know better than everyone else because I've done it all. So you don't know what you're talking about.
1: Sean mm. Landis is an iconic director and in, in the horror genre. He is very well known for directing An American Werewolf in London. Yep. Which might be the next paragraph that Amy says. And if she doesn't, which I know she's going to, the podcast that I mentioned a while ago called visitations which is where Elijah Wood and his partner talk to horror film directors they do talk to John landis oh in it and it's it's really wonderful it's called visitations check that shit
0: out interesting yeah I will have to check that out I feel like I in doing my research for this realized This is also an episode of Cursed Films, which you watched. Oh, shit. Yes. I haven't seen this episode. I didn't watch this episode either uh, because I honestly thought the podcast was really well done and did really great research. So I was, that was my primary source. But yeah, when I came across it, I was like, oh shit, Monique, I remember watched this for at least The Exorcist. No. And The Omen. No, Poltergeist and The Omen. Poltergeist and The Omen, yeah. Okay. I knew it was. Yeah. You know. Some of those. You know what time it is. I, sometimes. I, <laughs> sometimes. So, as Monique pointed out, John Landis does have a history in the horror genre. His first movie was the monster movie Schlock, which I am not familiar with, and I had not heard anything about that prior to this. He followed that up in a completely different direction with the Kentucky Fried movie. Fuck yeah, Kentucky Fried
1: movie.
0: Yep before becoming a household name with the financially successful but critically panned National Lampoon's Animal House, which is what I'm sure pretty much everyone knows him from. He followed that success up with, honestly, one of my favorite movies of all time, The Blues Brothers, as well as... I've never seen (gasps) The Blues. I've never seen it. I know. Monique, you would love it. It has so many amazing... I know. I know. ...amazing people in it. I know. I've never seen it. Dude, one of the facts in this podcast was that when Dan Aykroyd wrote the script for that, it was the screenplay for that. It was 300 pages long because he just (laughs) wanted, he wanted to put in every scene he ever wanted to put in in a movie. And so this screenplay is 300 pages long. I love it. I cannot believe you have not seen the Blues Brothers. I haven't. I'm going to do that this week. Honestly, I love you, but I might make that your, yeah, I might make that your assignment. Okay. I'm doing it this week. Like that was one of my dad's favorite movies. And he, I watched it like since I was kind of a uh, kid.
1: I just know they're on a mission from God. That's all I know. They're
0: on a mission from God. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. No, it's, uh, I will say nothing more. And then again, as Monique said, followed that up with An American Werewolf in London. And after that, again, another one of my favorite movies with Eddie Murphy, Trading Places. And again, Dan Aykroyd. Ah, uh, it's, again, fantastic. And he does all this before he's 35. So he's very successful at this so point. So
1: feel like shit about yourself. Right? Because I yeah.
0: fucking do. Get on. Get get to it. Randomly, he also directed Michael Jackson's Thriller music video, which I did not realize. Yes, he fucking did. And it was incredible. So talk about iconic horror horror, that's kind of the fucking- See, The fucking one. Yeah. Yeah. So Landis becomes known as the master of this style of gross-out raunchy comedy, but also has a horror element to some of his films as well. So it makes sense that he was brought on for Twilight Zone, the movie. And really, the directors are the real draw for this movie because, again, most of it's just remakes of segments previously aired on the show. The idea being that having better directors and more money- would elevate and improve the stories. Mm. It also should be noted that all of this takes place during a time where the studios were no longer the ones calling the shots during production, and instead directors now kind of had, like, complete control on set and what they said goes. Oh, shit. I didn't know any of that. Yeah, which is kind of, like, how the industry was when Steven Spielberg and John Landis were coming up. Like, that's what they were used to. Like, they were the boss. Like, what they said went. Like that's just kind of how it was. No. Time Out, the segment that was written and directed by John Landis, starred actor Vic Morrow. Morrow was born Victor Merozov in 1929 and was raised in the Bronx to a Jewish family. At 17, he dropped out of high school to enlist in the Navy and used the GI Bill to enroll in college, where he studied drama. He made his big screen debut in the movie Blackboard Jungle in 1955 and went on to become a successful TV actor. One of his most notable roles was as Chip Saunders in the TV show Combat, or if you're like me, you may remember him as Walter Matthau's nemesis in The Bad News Bears. Mmm. yes. So back to Vic Morrow, he went on to study directing at USC and directed seven episodes of Combat along with several other shows. Another fun fact, he is Jennifer Jason Leigh's father, which I had no fucking idea In Twilight Zone, the movie, Landis' story follows a man named Bill Connor, played by Vic Morrow, who's meeting some friends in a bar for drinks. Bill has just been informed that he didn't get a job he had applied for and goes on a super racist rant about the Jewish guy who got the job instead. The character then expands his racist rant to include African Americans, Koreans, and the Vietnamese. When he exits the bar later, Bill's transported to Nazi-occupied France, where he experiences a brief moment of what life is like for the Jews during that time, before being suddenly thrown into a KKK rally, where he experiences it from the view of a Black man. He's then transported again to Vietnam during the Vietnam War, where he's shot on by American troops despite being unarmed. He's then transported back to the World War II setting, where he is rounded up and carted off on a train. The story ends with him seeing his friends outside the bar through the slats of the train car. Now, production included some stunts and special effects work, specifically during the Vietnam scenes. So Paul Stewart was brought on as the special effects coordinator, and Dorsey Wingo was hired as the stunt helicopter pilot. Landis also brought on George Folsey Jr. as an associate producer, and Dan Allingham as a unit production manager, both of whom had worked with Landis before. So a little background on the helicopter pilot, Dorsey Allen Wingo. He was 35 years old at the time of the filming and had served as an army combat pilot in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. He was the head of operations for Western Helicopters Incorporated in Rialto at the time and had very recently set his sights on becoming a stunt helicopter pilot. Mm. Dorsey had 4,500 hours of flying time before the shoot and was a very experienced pilot. However, he was an inexperienced stunt pilot and didn't have any experience flying on movie sets, which, for the record, is a very different situation. Yep. Landis made it clear from the start of production that he wanted the stunts to be as real as possible.
1: Oh, that's not the same. That's why it's movie
0: magic. Yep, that's why we have special effects. Yes. On July 21st, 1982, they began filming the scene set in Vietnam. Which they filmed, obviously, in... Brother's birthday. Yeah. Brother's birthday? My
1: younger brother's birthday, yeah. July 21st. That's it. Hey, Jeremy. You don't listen to this,
0: but hi. Yay. <laughs> but hey. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. They started filming this on your birthday. Who does? Yeah. Kevin Quibble, the special effects operator, and Morgan Renard, the onset photographer, both said that Landis was getting frustrated with Vic's first scene in Vietnam. In the scene, Moro is in a stream surrounded by banana plants hiding from Vietnamese soldiers when he's eventually discovered and shot at by American soldiers. Mm. According to Quibble and Renard, Landis said that the scene didn't feel real enough and that the holes being blown in the banana plants weren't big enough. Ugh. Yeah. And then <laughs> Landis was informed that it would take about 15 minutes to make some adjustments to the special effects, mm. but Renard said that Landis decided this was too long and... Ordered one of the special effects guys to go get live ammunition, which, what the no. actual fuck? No,
1: no, Jonathan, Jonathan.
0: No, thank no. you. No. Others claimed that it wasn't actually Landis's idea to use live ammo, but no one seemed to be able to pinpoint whose idea it actually was. No,
1: why is live ammo a conversation?
0: Literally, anyone who got asked to do that, I'd be like, I don't feel comfortable going to purchase live ammunition for this movie. Thank you. It doesn't seem as though they used the live ammunition while Vic was in the scene, but there were conflicting accounts about what actually happened. One version said they had Vic on set, but yanked him off a couple of seconds before they fired. Another account said they never fired anywhere near him and that they fired in a completely different direction, 25 feet away from him instead. Regardless it was confirmed that live ammunition was used on set.
1: So I didn't... That's fucking wild.
0: Huge red flag already. Red flags. No. Which is absolutely insane, obviously. Yes. Spielberg was never on set for any portion of this segment Mm -hmm. that John Landis shot. But when he found out about it later, he was absolutely furious because he's a fucking professional and he knows this is fucking irresponsible as fuck. Camera operator Michael Scott said, quote, I had no sense whatsoever that the people running the operation had any sense of caring, any sense of responsibility for anyone involved, whether it be actors, crew, or bystanders, end quote. Fuck. I know I said this a lot. It's going to get worse. And I know you know this. It's going to get real bad.
1: I know this, yeah.
0: Later that night, on July 21st, 1982, they planned to shoot the scene that was intended as the climax of the story. Moro's character would stumble on a Vietnamese village under attack by U.S. forces and in a heroic and ultimately redemptive act would carry two young Vietnamese children across a stream while explosions went off and helicopters hovered above the scene. The scene was planned as a night shoot, which, because it involved children, was already problematic. Landis was informed by the casting department that having children work after 10 p.m. would require a special waiver from the state labor board because legally you can't have kids on set overnight.
1: Also, were they not
0: legal. Yes, they were not legal, Monique. Mm -hmm. And in case you didn't know, in the film industry, the amount of time that you can film with children directly correlates to their age. So for babies, you get like 30 minutes of filming, basically, and that's it.
1: That's why there's lots of like twins Twins. and triplets that happen.
0: Because then you get 30 minutes with each kid, you got an hour, Yeah, let's bang it up. Yeah. So the older the kids are, the more time you can legally have them on set. Now, As Chris and Lizzie point out, and I think is a very important thing to note, there's no guarantee that the waiver would have ever been approved, even if they had applied for it to go through things legally to hire these kids, Yeah, which, as you pointed out, was not the case. Hmm. It's possible, and I'm assuming probably very likely, that after reading the details of the scene that they would have said, absolutely fucking not, especially since the casting director herself told Landis that the scene, quote, sounded kind of dangerous, end quote, more than a month before the scene was set to shoot. Jonathan. Yep. But Landis allegedly told the casting team, the hell with you guys, we'll get them off the street ourselves. Which, classy. Jaws on the floor. Not a cute look. No.
1: Especially since I know how this story ends girl. I
0: know. I'm sorry. I'm doing this to all of you who don't know what's going on right now. So in an attempt to circumvent child labor laws, Landis quote unquote hired two children, six-year-old Renee Chen and seven-year-old Micah Dinley. Ugh. And I say hired, but obviously they were being paid under the table. So they weren't technically hired. The children were hired after Peter Wei Te Chen, Renee's uncle, was approached by a colleague whose wife was a production secretary for the film. Chen first thought of his brother's six-year-old daughter, Renee, whose parents agreed to let her participate. He then called a Vietnamese colleague, Daniel Lee, who had a seven-year-old son named Micah. The children's audition apparently was just them being paraded in front of Landis, who took a brief look at them and said, quote, it's good, it's fine, end quote. Micah's mother, Mrs. Lee, said she was told by George Falsey Jr. that, quote, they were going to shoot the movie, and if they hired Micah, they would use him where a Vietnam village would be bombed and destroyed, and only two children would survive, end quote. Mrs. Lee and her husband were both Vietnamese immigrants, and her husband had lived through the Vietnam War. He would later say that the explosions that he saw on set were worse than what he saw in the actual Vietnam War. Oh, What the fuck? It needs to be said that a huge detail about the scene that they conveniently left out when they told the children's parents was the fact that there was also going to be a helicopter flying above them. They never mentioned the helicopter at all, let alone told them that it would be flying close to the children. <sighs> oh, yeah. Oh, girl. And as if we weren't already fucking enraged at John Landis enough, according to production secretary Donna Schumann, Landis and George Fulsey Jr. joked about going to jail for illegally hiring the children.
1: Motherfuck! No. Like, dude,
0: why? Why? No. At the time, production was behind schedule, so they were definitely rushing. They were definitely not thinking clearly or taking the care they admittedly should have. But it doesn't seem like Landis or anyone else on the crew thought the children were in immediate danger. On the night of July 21st, the children were kept waiting in a trailer for hours as the shoots ran further behind schedule. Eventually, they began filming their scene around 2 a.m. on July 22nd. But Micah and Renee kept laughing because they're just kids, which delayed the scene even further. So a frustrated Landis shut down the shoot for the night and moved on to other scenes. Fulci then asked the parents if they could have the kids return the next night and the parents said yes. So they come back the next night, July 22nd. And again, the kids were kept waiting for hours. Fulci reassured Renee's father that the shoot was very simple and told him that he would not need to accompany his daughter during the actual filming, which I'm not a parent, but if there's going to be explosions near my kid, then I'm going to be on set the whole fucking time. I'm not gonna fuck off to a fucking in-out burger and come back.
1: My face is buried in my hand because I'm so upset by what's by what's coming.
0: I know. She took her glasses off. Like she I did.
1: Yeah. I'm really upset by what's coming.
0: So. yeah, it's a vibe. I'm sorry. I know. I know. It's worse it's when okay. you know sometimes because you're just like, oh
1: ugh. You're just waiting for the inevitable awfulness.
0: Yep. You like got that the pit in the bottom of your stomach, and you're just like, mm-hmm. ugh, okay. Yeah. Brace myself. <sighs> yeah. According to several people on the set, the helicopter scene was only rehearsed a few times prior to filming and never with the full set of explosions. Kevin Quibble said he wasn't given any information about the scene prior to filming. Another special effects guy, Jerry Williams, said that Paul Stewart, the special effects supervisor, pulled James Camomile aside before the shoot to tell him not to detonate until the helicopter was at a safe height. Which makes sense because three hours earlier while shooting another scene, Dorsey Wingo, the helicopter pilot, was injured by excess heat from an explosion that was detonated too close to the helicopter. So they're already seeing safety issues. We're already fucking shit up. <sighs> Monique's distress. The distress is optimal. It's, it's a lot. Yes. It's the correct response
1: though. You know, but, but it's a thing of like... Hi, these are indications that we shouldn't go forward. Yes, or we need to. We need to reevaluate the situation.
0: There are problems very clearly. What the fuck? Yeah. At approximately two twenty a.m. on July twenty third, nineteen eighty two, Vic Morrow was carrying both children across the river while Dorsey Wingo and five other people, including Dan Allingham, were on board his helicopter hovering above the three actors. While this. Is the most disputed part. Multiple people on set reported that they heard Landis telling Dorsey over the radio to go lower, lower, lower. This resulted in the helicopter being only 20 feet above Morrow and the children. And to give you an example of how close that really is, if you're standing next to a building on the first floor, that helicopter would be hovering just below the second story of the building. That's fucking really close. That's way too close.
1: I'm not responding because my my head is in my hands and I'm I'm very upset. I know. I'm trying to not cry
0: at what comes next. (laughs) I know. I'm I, Lizzie, one of the host, gets like very emotional during this part, and like I fucking get it. I get it. It's senseless and tragic, and it's fucking awful.
1: That's the thing. There is zero reason. That what you're going to say in the next seven minutes should have happened.
0: Yeah. I'm checking all of the wrong boxes. Yes.
1: And I'm upset and I'm trying to not cry.
0: I know. That's where I'm at. And I did this to you and I apologize.
1: (laughs) It's fine. Amy, I did this to myself because (laughs) I asked you to do this podcast with me. So I did this to myself.
0: Hey, do you want to tell me horrifying stories every week and like maybe make me cry from them? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. She's like, yeah.
1: Of Ramonadas
0: yeah. and Margaritas.
1: So like, <laughs> totally. The story is all the time. I just don't know why we can't be cool. And I don't know why. Right? Everybody be cool. Why what you're going to tell me in the next couple minutes happened because there's no reason for it to have happened.
0: Literally none whatsoever, despite what John Landis wants, to, wants you to believe. Yep. Yeah. James Chamomile then triggered a massive explosion, which it seems, again, they hadn't tested. And the explosive damaged one of the helicopter's tail rotors, which caused it to spin out of Wingo's control. <sighs> and because he was so close to the ground, there was literally nothing he could do to get it to land. Mm. The helicopter crashed immediately into the ground, crushing six-year-old Renee Chen. <sighs> As Vic Morrow reached back to her, Vic Morrow and seven-year-old Micah Lee were decapitated. Prior to doing the scene, Morrow reportedly said, quote, I've got to be crazy to do this shot. I should have asked for a double, end quote. And his final line to the children, which he never got the chance to deliver, was, quote, I'll keep you safe, kids. I promise nothing will hurt you. I swear to God, end quote. Which is the most like chilling fucking thing of this whole story And how fucking horrible it is. Like, that was the thing that got me so bad.
1: So I I didn't know about the line. I knew about everything else. Oh, Um, it
0: makes it, like, extra chilling and horrifying and just so upsetting. Like, I can't. I really, it just, it, like, I'm holding my stomach right now because it's, oh. Again, it's that thing of adults are supposed to take care of children. Yes. Yes. Like, you're not supposed to put them in danger for a movie. And for the record, the scene was really not safe for anyone on the crew. Landis himself was close enough that had the helicopter fallen at a slightly different angle, it would have crushed him. So it's not like he endangered others knowingly while he was a safe distance away. But as, again, the host, Chris and Lizzie, point out, a lot of times directors have this mentality that they'll just do whatever needs to be done for a shot and they'll take risks that other people would not be willing to take. So while you can say like, oh, he must not have thought it was that dangerous if he he was just as close, eh, that might not actually be the case. He may have just felt the risk was worth taking to get the shot, which is fucking stupid. Sorry.
1: I mean, the reason the Screen Actors Guild exists is because they were literally murdering extras for the shot because directors didn't give a fuck.
0: Literally. Thank you. Making the fucking point. Like, that's insane. Yes. Insane. They're like, oh,
1: whatever. That's fine. It's cool. I got my shot. Yeah. That's what matters. I got my shot.
0: I did watch the footage because I'm a fucking Glen for punishment, apparently. And wait, wait.
1: Like the movie or like se- no. the like separate footage.
0: I watched the crash footage on YouTube. I mean, to be fair, there's a lot going on and it's old footage. It's kind of sure. rainy. It's not super Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's not super in your face. Like I couldn't really like see the decapitation particularly. You just see the helicopter crash into them. You see that they're there and you see the helicopter fall like right on top of them. But I mean, literally one second into watching this footage, you're like, oh, this is dangerous as fuck. No one should be doing this. Like I cannot imagine anyone on set seeing this and thinking this was at all a safe and controlled situation. Like it's him. Trudging through the water while he's carrying both children, like one under each arm, the winds from the rotor blades are whipping around them. There are explosions all around them. It's hard to even see what's going on, like I said, because it's either really dark because it's nighttime or it's really bright because there's a fucking million explosions going off. (sighs) Like it's actually fucking insane. And of course this is the case, but it also feels extra horrifying to note this the crash was caught on tape by six cameras because of course it's a big expensive shot. They need all of the angles for it, which this is going to come into supply a little later. So everyone in the helicopter survived the crash, including cameraman Randy Robinson, who said the first bomb blast was stronger than he expected. According to him, it ricocheted off a wall and backfired into the helicopter the crew tried to maneuver their craft out. And when the chopper went down, people started scrambling to get inside. He said, all you could see was blazing fire wherever you looked and people running away from the trees. Again, everyone is close to the set and it was completely possible that Dorsey could have crashed into the crane and the three other cameras and hit the 40 or 50 people standing around. So it's awful. It's so terrible. Like I can't imagine a situation in which this crash is, like, handled well, and no one gets hurt. Like, it's fucking a nightmare scenario.
1: So I'm being very silent because I'm just very upset and, like, just resigned to this situation of, like, this happened. There's literally no reason for it to happen other than people being shitty. Oh, yeah. And uh, three people are dead. So, you know, two of which are children. Yes.
0: A six-year-old and a seven-year-old. For zero fucking reason. Literally. And there's no way to not be wildly upset about it. No, that's the correct response. You're having a correct emotional reaction right now, Monique.
1: And here's the thing. My emotional reaction is just retreating into myself to not process that. Because there's no fucking reason for, for that to happen. Uh, there's no fucking reason. First, on a fucking film set of all fucking places where everything is so fucking strict than a union film, this is not some fucking bullshit done in someone's backyard with a fucking Super 8.
0: This is a union film. With a big name director, yeah.
1: that This is a studio film. John Lannis is fucking directing. There's no fucking reason whatsoever fucking ever why anything in this universe should fucking happen. Yes. And it did and it's just outrageous and upsetting and and it's just the only thing I could do is bury my head in my hands and try to not fucking cry i
0: I mean, unless you're sobbing, that's the only other thing you should do is just like uh head in the hands, depression' Because
1: I'm so fucking upset by the and and I'm laughing because my defense mechanism is like at an eleven to be like, don't feel the feelings, yeah. It's so fucked up and it's upsetting and and there is not a goddamn fucking thing I can say that will make it better and will bring those two kids back or bring Vic Morrow back. No.
0: It's fucking
1: deeply upsetting. And it is unfucking necessary. Yeah. In every fucking
0: way. And it's unacceptable, honestly. And
1: unfucking acceptable. Yes. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Yep. Yes. Important to note. Brandy also very clearly stated that the helicopter was directed to go lower. Now, a couple things happened immediately following the accident. Rolling Stone published an article examining the accident and Landis' culpability. Following the release of that article, a bunch of directors banded together to write an open letter in defense of John Landis. Of course. Yeah, which included Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas, which, guys, the fuck. And in this letter, they basically claimed that the director's only job is the art of the movie and that ultimately... As opposed to what? The safety of everyone on set, apparently, is not their responsibility. That falls to everyone else, and they should have said something. But
1: you can't see some
0: holding a double bird. Monique is, yeah.
1: And here's the thing. I'm doing it to Amy, but Amy yeah. knows oh, that know. I'm not yeah. actually doing it to her because we're on the same fucking page about this. Yeah. I'm, in, I'm raging at her, but she's like,
0: yeah, girl, same. It's give me your rage. I will release it exponentially towards John Landis. I We can quadruple bird him. We'll like both do it. He's, yeah. Fuck John Landis,
1: fuck you. I know. I really liked you. And this is not kosher. Don't listen to his visitations episode.
0: I know he does two of my favorite movies, and I'm like really upset about it. And I'm I'm justifying liking them because I want to support everyone else on the movie who wasn't shitty John Landis. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I'm going to try to go with that.
1: Incidentally, uh, I don't know if you bring this up, Leonardo DiCaprio has the rights to the newest Twilight Zone movie.
0: Oh, <gasps> I. Don't mention that. And I didn't know that. He's
1: had it for like 20 years.
0: Okay. What that means, I don't know. Because he hasn't done Dick with it. I was like, is he going to, yeah, like put that out or be in it or something? I would love to see that. That sounds amazing.
1: He's also had the rights to the Devil in the White City H.H. Holmes movie. What? For like...
0: Ever what the, Do something with that. I would love to see that. Girl,
1: figure a fucking way out.
0: did they fucking do that. Ridley Scott bought the rights to, like, one of my, like, favorite young adult books. And, like, I was have been excited about it for genuinely 10 years. And it's never come out. It's probably never going to come out. So. Yeah.
1: It's, it'll come out in, like, 20 years when you're not a young adult and, like, <laughs> and have I kids. And you're, like. remember anything in the story. <laughs> in my day, I love this book. <laughs> uh
0: so, again, all these directors write this letter in defense of John Landis and basically just say that it's not their responsibility, that that's why they have everybody else on the crew, blah, blah, blah.
1: Fine. Okay, here's the thing. Okay, I'll even accept that. Who was the one who was like, this was acceptable Yes. to fly, fly this far down? Because anyone worth their salt would be like, absolutely fucking not. Yes. Any safety stunt person would be like, no, this is not acceptable.
0: No, but as I mentioned before, this is during a time when directors like really did have the ultimate say, and these are very famous directors. Like you're not gonna fucking be the person who's like Tell Steven Spielberg to fuck himself. Totally. Yeah, absolutely not. So it's more of a dictatorship than a democracy. Clearly. Yeah. So people were afraid to say no to these big name directors, even when they thought something was wrong. One of the few directors who was outspoken against Landis's defense was Steven Spielberg.
1: Oh shit. Who was on the, I was on the the movie.
0: Yeah. He was a co-producer on the entire movie and a producer on this segment in particular. Vic Morrow's funeral was held on July 25th, 1982. According to Vic Morrow's longtime friend, Dick Peabody, who was one of the pallbearers and was asked by the family to give a eulogy at the service. John Landis showed up uninvited to this funeral and proceeded to get up and deliver a eulogy in which he stated he was proud to have directed Vic in what Vic himself considered the best performance of his career he also said quote tragedy strikes in an instant but film is immortal vic lives forever end quote go fuck yourself he also apparently showed up like acting like he was super frail and couldn't walk and had his like wife and george falsey jr oh
1: no he yeah of course yeah yeah he put he pulled the fucking like a robert durst yes eat a dick
0: go fuck yourself that's fucking gross It's gross, John Landis. I love you. How dare you? But literally, how fucking dare you? Uninvited, and you're going to give a eulogy? Like, stand in the back quietly. You shut the fuck
1: up. You show up quietly. You pay for his daughter's every move in her life.
0: 100%. You
1: don't say dick about it. Absolutely not. You, You are a benefactor a la Great Expectations.
0: Yep. Mrs. Havisham, that shit.
1: You shut the fuck up and you live with the fact that it was your decisions that contributed to this girl's father's death. Yes. And not to fucking mention the two children who people gave less of a fuck about because they weren't U.S. citizens.
0: Yes, which is also fucking gross.
1: So that's what you fucking do, John Landis. You shut the fuck up and you do everything you can to make the horrible thing that you fucked up the rightest you can with what you can. Yes. Which is not a lot. No. It's basically money and being like, I'm so fucking sorry. And I will never stop being sorry for this as long as I fucking live. Yes. an acknowledgement of that. Not being like, I'm going to show up to your fucking funeral and to Yolchi and be like, he nailed it. Like,
0: No. No. Spoiler, he doesn't do any of that, and he's a trash person for the rest of this fucking story. So just prepare yourself for that. Yes. For the record, Peabody said Morrow's ex-wife and girlfriend both told him that Morrow said the Twilight Zone movie was a piece of shit. So <laughs> fuck you, John Landis. It's not the best forwards of a career. Fuck you. Fuck you. Landis also attended Renee Chen's funeral, but it's unclear whether he attended Micah's. On May 31st, 1983, an L.A. County grand jury opened hearings and Landis voluntarily testified. Mm. On June 16th, despite him having testified, Landis, Dan Allingham, and George Folsey were all indicted for involuntary manslaughter. Yes, correct. Yep. One day later, Dorsey Wingo and Paul Stewart, the special effects coordinator, were also indicted. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, Dorsey's pilot license was also revoked.
1: Yes, at minimum. At minimum.
0: On June 24th, 1983, the same day of Twilight Zone, the movie's premiere, all five men were arraigned. After the movie came out, a New York Times review stated, quote, a lot of money and several lives would have been saved if the producers had just re-released the original programs, end quote. Burn, first of all. Savage. And
1: true. And also, where's the fucking lie? Yeah, fucking true.
0: Fuck you guys. That same year, Morrow's daughter settled with Landis and the producers out of court for an undisclosed amount of money. However, both Renee and Micah's parents did not settle out of court prior to the criminal trial. On March 6, 1984, the National Transportation Safety Board submitted their official report on the crash. They started investigating immediately after it happened, and it should be pointed out that John Landis petitioned for the report to be revised basically immediately upon it coming out. The report was revised and didn't get resubmitted till October 30th. But it seems like whatever he was trying to get removed from that report didn't work. Because on April 3rd, 1984, all five were ordered to stand trial for the manslaughter deaths of Vic Morrow. Yes. Six-year-old Renee Chen and seven-year-old Micah Din Lee. Yes. The minimum you can do is get on your fucking
1: knees And say, I am so fucking sorry. Yeah. Holy fuck. I didn't realize I'm so fucking sorry. That is actually the fucking minimum you can do as a decent human being.
0: Yeah. Don't be a complete asshole about the situation. Take a note. Interesting to note, they weren't actually charged with hiring the kids illegally. Which seems a little weird, but it's possible that they didn't charge him with this because they were trying to get them on more serious charges, such as child endangerment, which they were eventually charged with. Yeah. Also possible that they didn't charge him with that because then they would have had to bring more people into the charges because so many people in the crew knew that the children were hired illegally and would also need to be prosecuted. And it would have been a whole thing and just detract track from what the real issue was. Don't forget, though... Landis himself said that had they charged him with illegally hiring the children, he would have pled guilty. When Landis found out he was going to trial, he said, quote, I can think of nothing worse than losing your child, and our hearts go out to the families of Renee Chen and Micah Lee and Vic Morrow. The idea that this could be anything but an unforeseeable accident is not only wrong, it's bewildering, end quote. Which, What are you fucking talking about? There is absolutely no way this was unforeseeable. You had a helicopter flying 20 feet above people on the ground and explosions going off all around them. It's not inconceivable that something could go horribly wrong and that helicopter could fucking crash into the ground. And in this case, crash into three people and kill them. Whatever you're on, I would love some because you're delusional as fuck, dude. In the official report that the National Safety Board submitted, they concluded that the crash had definitely been caused by the detonation of an explosive which damaged the tail rotor of the helicopter, causing it to spin out of control and crash land in the stream. The report also confirmed that the helicopter was hovering only 25 feet above the ground before the explosion, far lower than was considered safe. The report also stated that had the helicopter been at a higher altitude, Even if it had lost its tail rotor, Dorsey Wingo may have been able to enter into an auto-rotative descent, which would have given him a chance at a controlled landing. Mm -hmm. However, because they were only 25 feet above the ground, there was absolutely no way that he could have done anything to prevent this crash, which is obviously a fucking huge oversight and an overall terrible choice by the special effects coordinators and the pilot. Because again, although he's an experienced helicopter pilot, He is not an experienced stunt helicopter pilot. He doesn't fucking know. He's never been on set and flown a helicopter on set before. Because Dorsey was ultimately responsible for the height of the helicopter, he was deemed liable. But it's possible that had the helicopter been at an appropriate height, that he actually would not have been liable in the deaths of Vic, Renee, and Micah. He was definitely considered liable in the case, though, because as the report stated, Dorsey and the other crew members had expressed concern about the shoot prior to the scene. Of course. Yep. This was obviously really bad for Dorsey since it showed that he, the pilot, the person with the most experience in this particular situation, knew that this was potentially hazardous. And ultimately, he is the person who had the final control over the helicopter. So even if Landis was saying lower, lower, lower... Dorsey could have always made the decision to fly to safer height and just been like, fuck you. Yes. Yeah. The report also stated that Dorsey should have had a direct line of contact to the special effects team, which apparently he did not have. The only people he was talking to were the unit production manager and the special effects coordinator. So he didn't have a direct line to the people who were physically firing off the explosives. Like maybe give a bitch a heads up. Just saying. I'm flying a thing with literally like knives above me. Cool. Again, it's fucking insane. The report concluded that the root cause of the accident was a failure to establish a direct line of communication between the pilot and the director and stated that multiple people clearly said that John Landis asked Dorsey to alter the maneuver to go lower than he was comfortable going. And that was still their conclusion, even in the revised version of the report. Because again, John Landis through a fame was like, No, can you change some things, please? It's not a cute look for me because it's shitty and terrible. Two things I feel the need to reiterate. One, the stunt was not fully rehearsed beforehand with the full level of explosions that were intended in the final stunt. And two, three hours earlier, they had an incident in which an explosion detonated too close to the helicopter and Dorsey Wingo himself was injured. This was not unforeseeable. What are you talking about, John Landis? So, now to the trial. It was known as the Twilight Zone trial, obviously became incredibly famous, incredibly well publicized. It was an unprecedented trial. It was literally the first time anyone had been put on trial for the deaths of performers. And it was considered a very like Hollywood trial, meaning highly publicized, very theatrical John Landis started bringing all of his famous friends to the courtroom and making sure to shake their hands outside in view of the court. Yep. In view of the cameras. Fuck. I am giving a double bird to all this. Yep. Because
1: fuck this. Fuck you. You know you did it. Own your shit. Take your fucking penance. Take the fucking punishment for the crime. And just live your life. Don't bring out your fucking famous friends. Fuck them. They have nothing the fuck to do with us. Yeah. You fucked up a lot. Three people are fucking dead. Fuck you. Own your shit. Fuck you. For real. I have so many middle fingers up in the air. I'm so fucking upset.
0: It's infuriating. It's really infuriating. In 1985, the initial prosecutor, Gary Kesselman, was suddenly taken off the case and replaced with Deputy District Attorney Leah Perwin Diagnostio. Kesselman later claimed that he was removed because he refused to allow a witness's testimony who he believed was not credible. That witness, by the way, was Donna Schumann, the production secretary, and Donna is a key part of the prosecution's case because she testified that Landis and Fulsey had joked about going to jail for hiring the kids illegally, and that they had specifically joked about going to jail for hiring the kids to work near explosives. Leah said that her case may have been getting sabotaged from the inside by someone from the district attorney's office who was withholding information and specifically that she was not informed of Donna's statements. It wasn't until Donna told her in passing that she even found out. And these were statements that Donna had made three years ago when she was talking to Kesselman. Kesselman's like, she's not credible because I don't like what she says. Cool. That's why. Yep. Donna also testified that Landis repeatedly ignored warnings that the scene was dangerous. After the defense attorneys accused her of lying, she said, which the, the tone she says it in is just, like, lovely and so dramatic, and I love it. She said, quote, we can't all be liars. Why would I lie? End quote. It's glorious. Like, uh, I'm not doing it justice, but it's magnificent. No, but, like, also relax. Yeah. It's, like, stop. landis's main attorney was james f neal who had successfully defended elvis presley's doctor and got him exonerated and he also represented exxon after the exxon valdez oil spill
1: of course they fucking did so like
0: you're the bad guy lawyer. cool i'll hire you uh, to defend me amazing
1: literally yes
0: the other main defense attorney was Harlan Braun, who was Fulci's main attorney. And Braun was known for defending Roman Polanski when he tried to get back in the academy. Slow clap, guys. Good job. You're nailing it. My rage. Knows no bounds, Girl, it's going to be even more infuriating. <laughs> oh, fuck. Fuck. The trial doesn't start until 1986 and went on for 10 months. Fuck. The jury listened to nearly 100 witnesses, including Landis himself, who still stated that he didn't think the scene was inherently dangerous. Fuck you. What is wrong with your brain? Do you not perceive danger correctly like the rest of us? Because this was inherently dangerous. Thanks.
1: Well, here's the thing. So I just on the show for the last, whatever, 16 months. We have chided criminals for being shitty at their job. And I understand that Landis is doing all the correct things, but also, fuck you. Yes. Don't be a shitty person. Yes. It's the asshole of all assholes. It is your fault that three people are dead, two of which are children. Own your shit, pay your shit, do your debt to society, and move on with your life. Yeah. Don't say you weren't responsible when everyone fucking knows you were. Fuck you.
0: Yes. And that it wasn't dangerous. Like, there are explosions involved. It's inherently dangerous. Thanks. And there's two children involved. Yes. Yes. For the record, when Dorsey Wingo got on the stand, which this If you felt any sympathy for Dorsey Wingo, fucking don't. Fuck him. Because when he got on the stand, he basically blamed Vic Morrow for not getting out of the way of the helicopter blades fast enough. So go fuck yourself. John Landis admitted at the trial that he had only seen footage of the crash twice, saying, quote, It's very hard for me to watch. I'm sorry. End quote.
1: Is that hard for you? It's super hard for you? With your head still attached to your body to watch it? That's super hard for you, John Landis? Yeah.
0: Fuck you. Seriously. The AD testified that he had wanted to use dummies and stunt doubles and brought up his concerns the day he read the script. And when you see the footage, the kids really aren't in focus. So, like, so many things are going on that you really could have just, like, had dummies. You wouldn't have been able to tell that there weren't real kids. Like, there was literally no reason for them to be in the scene at all. Yes.
1: Get a fucking dummy. Literally, it's gonna cost you less. Who gives a fuck? No one's gonna actually notice.
0: Yeah, you think people watching in the big screen are be like, "That's a dummy. That's not a real kid." Come on, it's a lame, it's a lame movie. No, and that's what you fucking do as a director. Yes, you don't endanger the lives of three of your actors to get the shot, quote unquote. And also at like one or two in the morning. You're tired. Like, you are bound to make mistakes and shit.
1: Yeah. At 1 or 2 in the morning, there's no reason for kids to be up that late. No. You get a fucking dummy, and you call it a fucking day.
0: Yeah, it's fucking fine. Trust me. And again, with going back to the whole John Landis only watched the crash footage twice, the jury was taken to a theater to watch the crash footage on the big screen, and they watched it from all six camera angles. So, repeatedly, like multiple times, they showed them this. That's horrifying. But
1: on Landis, so it's
0: too much for him. Yeah, I, like, I can't watch it. It's too much. He's also innocent. Dude, go fuck yourself. Seriously. Get the fuck out of here. Apparently, a lot of directors were afraid to testify during the trial and even admitted that they were afraid to testify. One of the few directors who was willing to take the stand for the prosecution was Jackie Cooper, and he was called in for his expert testimony. He said the accident had already resulted in greater awareness of safety and that he had been appointed to the Director's Guild of America's Safety Board, which did not exist prior to this accident. He was also adamant that there was absolutely no reason this stunt should have occurred or continued, especially after there was an incident earlier in the night in which the explosions were already too close. He said if it was him that he would have shut it down, no questions asked. Because yes, that's the correct response for a normal, sane human being who doesn't want to endanger the lives of a respected actor and two young children. Thank you. I am so upset. Like, I'm beyond words how upset I am. Yep. That's where I'm at. It's... Not really surprising that people were afraid to speak up because apparently those that did said their careers never really recovered because people wouldn't hire them. During the trial, all the prosecution is trying to prove is that the defendants acted with criminal negligence that resulted in three deaths. Which, spoiler, they did. They did. Yes. The fact that they're even having to argue this instead of being like, hi, did you see the footage of the crazy dangerous situation they put everyone in when like they didn't practice at first? And had an incident earlier. Cool, making sure everyone saw this footage. Whereas the defense's entire argument is that this was unforeseeable, which, like I just said, if you watch the footage, I don't know how you could fucking think that ever. It looks as dangerous as it is. I'm quiet, but <laughs> but she has devil birds like nonstop. They're just like constant. Constantly flying through the air around her. They're beautiful. Because
1: Amy will say another outrageous thing. Uh, Yeah. Amy will say another outrageous thing that the defendants will say. And I can't respond except with a double bird because of how outrageous it is. That's okay.
0: I don't like birds, but I like your birds, Monique. I'll take that.
1: And because Amy is a joy and a delight, she understands that the birds are not towards her. No. They're towards the outrageousness that is being said by her. Yes.
0: Yes. Amy, I love you. I love you. I was like, I don't love John Landis. I think, yeah, he's a real, yeah. No, you know what? Fuck you, John Landis. Yep, yep. After the 10-month trial concluded, the jury deliberated for nine days before on May 29th, 1987, much to, I'm sure, many people, including my own dismay, all five defendants were found not guilty on all charges which included charges of child endangerment, for the record. Which, like, I feel like is, like, the least, most baseline charge they could have gotten for this. Most
1: obvious
0: thing, yes. And they're like, no, they didn't endanger any children. What, those two children that died in this crazy, like, foreseeable... The
1: one who was decapitated, and the one who had a fucking helicopter dropped on it? No, they were fine. They're not in danger. What are you talking about? What's What? What?! Girl, you crazy? What? Like it's
0: infuriating. I like can't. Girl, here you want a little more rage? John Landis went on to make comments about what a hard time this was in his life. You need to shut the fuck up. Yes. If you get acquitted, you shut the fuck up and you go away.
1: If you get if you get acquitted for murdering three fucking people because of your goddamn fucking negligence on your fucking set. You shut the fuck up for the rest of your fucking life and you pay every fucking bill of that family's life. Oh my God, I'm so fucking angry and my my face is in my hands and I'm sorry because that's where I'm at in the story. Amy, please continue <laughs> with the rest of the episode.
0: We're almost, we're at the end here. So we're almost done. Because this is where I'm going to live. <laughs> I'm so fucking upset.
1: <sighs> I'm sorry. And I was upset the second I understood this was the story you're doing. And it's just worse and worse.
0: I know. I love you so much, though. I love you. I don't know how I missed the story. Like, I, it, it blew my mind. I couldn't handle it for one fucking second. I, it was enraging. Because it's, Fucking outrageous. Yes. I will say probably the one good thing to come out of this senseless tragedy was that changes were made in Hollywood regarding safety on set. Productions began adhering more strictly to child labor laws. The FAA passed regulations about how aircraft should be handled on set. This originally included fixed wing aircraft, but after this accident specifically, they added helicopters to those regulations and required a waiver to use them on set. Warner Brothers set up safety commissions to finally monitor every potentially hazardous aspect of filmmaking, which resulted in the safety manuals that are now required to be distributed on the set of every major film. The Director's Guild of America began penalizing directors that did not adhere to safety measures on set, which they had not done previously. SAG set up a safety line that actors could call if they were ever concerned about their safety on set. It was reported that after the crash, injuries on set dropped from 214 a year to 65. Yeah, It's insane. It also created a new position in the industry, which is called a risk management position, which didn't exist prior to this. And if it did exist in any sort of iteration, it's like some dude in an office. It's not somebody on set. They're actually seeing the risk involved to people in person. So it does seem that much of Hollywood did learn a valuable lesson from this absolutely terrible tragedy. Landis, on the other hand, clearly fucking didn't learn anything because one year after the trial, he invited all the jury members to a special screening of his newest movie, Coming to America, as a thank you. Which it should be noted that Harlan Braun, Landis's own defense attorney thought this was in poor taste and went so far as to wonder why the dead children's parents weren't invited. Because it's gross, John Landis. Why are you thanking the jury by inviting them to your new movie? That was a double bird that Amy said yes to. I am yesing all of your double birds because I feel them viscerally in my body. It's the only reaction I can have to them. So regarding his getting the director position on coming to America. Apparently Eddie Murphy like did this kind of as a favor for him because he felt bad for him. They like were friends prior to this. He said, quote, I wanted to help out Landis. I figured I'd give this guy a shot because his career was fucked, but he wound up fucking me. End quote. Apparently on the set of coming to America, Landis was secretly pissed at Eddie Murphy this whole time because he never came to the trial to show his support. Dude,
1: fuck you. He gave you a job, homie. Yes, yes. Who gives a fuck about support? You know what matters? Money. Cash money. So if you're getting a job, that matters more than showing up to fucking trial.
0: Yes. Thank you. And- So this information comes from a Playboy article and the interviewer who's interviewing Eddie Murphy asked him, like, do you think he was guilty? And Murphy basically said that he wouldn't pass judgment on that, but did say, quote, if you're directing a movie and two kids get their heads chopped off at fucking 12 o'clock at night when they ain't supposed to be kids working and you said action, then you have some sort of responsibility. End quote. Where's the fucking lie, though? Amen, Eddie Murphy. And this is someone who is his friend by all accounts. Apparently, Eddie Murphy had to pull a bunch of strings to get him hired as the director on Coming to America.
1: And you're going to be upset that he didn't show up to your fucking trial?
0: Yes, and be, like, resentful of him on set? Fuck you, John Landis. Straight up. Yes. So... He's doing his friend a solid. And instead of being grateful, Landis demands a shit ton more money that was way above the acting price, which they gave him because of Eddie Murphy. And then he shows up and is a complete asshole to Eddie Murphy, saying shit like, I'm the boss, I'm the director. And apparently one of his favorite things to do was remind Eddie Murphy that he had worked with Michael Jackson. Who gives a fuck? And that he was the only person brave enough to tell Michael Jackson, quote, fuck you, end quote.
1: You know what, John Landis? Fuck you. Yeah. How about that?
0: I'm brave enough to tell you that. Fuck you. Double birds. Yep. This entire time. Yep. Eddie Murphy also had two writers come to set who come to the set of coming to America because they were working on developing a sitcom with his company. And Landis saw them and started like grilling them about why they were there. And if Eddie had paid them, which doesn't even apply because they're writing a separate thing. This has nothing the fuck to do with you. Yes. And they're writing something for development. You don't get paid for that unless they buy it. So it doesn't apply at all. So he basically is like Eddie, your company's fucking these guys out of their money. Like, don't be afraid to go up to Eddie and say, fuck you. So Eddie Murphy takes him in a playful chokehold. John Landis then apparently tries to playfully punch him in the balls. And Eddie Murphy immediately cuts off his windpipe and drops John Landis's ass to the fucking ground. Bye, bitch. Because, correct. Don't fuck with Eddie Murphy, dude. Seriously. It's Eddie motherfucking Murphy. Show some
1: goddamn respect. Seriously,
0: this is the fucking Beverly Hills cop. You think you're going to get one over on him and you're going to try to punch him in the balls? This is raw shit. Thank you.
1: Don't fuck with Eddie Murphy.
0: Thank you. So John Landis, whatever, runs outside and then comes back to him later to rant and called him an ignorant, talentless asshole and that he only took coming to America for the money and that he never respected Murphy after he didn't show up for his trial, which, fuck you.
1: Fuck this motherfucker.
0: Yes. The most infuriating thing, and again, this is just one example of it, he continues to get work. John Landis continues to get work continuously. Yeah. Like He's still like- He's an icon. Yes. He's an icon. Yeah. Yes. Totally. Like yeah. he literally, even after all this shit with Eddie Murphy on Coming to America, he directs Beverly Hills Cop 3. Like, yeah. I mean, the shittiest one, obviously, but still, like, still, yeah. You got paid for that after killing three people through negligence and endangerment. Yeah.
1: Not just people,
0: two of whom were children. Children, yes. Again, thank you. Yeah. Thank God you got that shot, though, right? That they didn't use in the final film because it went horribly, horribly wrong. And that would have been gross and upsetting. When asked about the crash, Steven Spielberg said, quote, no movie is worth dying for. I think people are standing up much more now than ever before to producers and directors who ask too much. If something isn't safe, it's the right and responsibility of every actor or crew member to yell cut, end quote. Facts. Steven Spielberg. yes. Thank you. gee. Role model yes. for the fucking industry, clearly, because everyone else is trash and defending John Landis, who killed people. <sighs> okay. Two of which were children. Two of which were children. Deep breaths. We're at the end here. <sighs> it's obviously terrible that it took a senseless and very clearly preventable tragedy that resulted in the deaths of three people, including two young children, as Rooney and I have screamed multiple times to make what now seem like obvious changes to the safety standards in the film industry. That being said, it is probably the one good thing to come out of all of this. And that is the story of the Twilight Zone trial.
1: Ah, uh, ah, uh, Guys, if you've been with us, thank you. Because it turns out we're another fucking horror podcast. And at no point have we said that in the last two months.
0: We've just given up, honestly, on announcing what podcast it is. You know,
1: Deb, I'm sorry. It's fine. We failed you. We just do the outros. Yeah. I'm Monique Sanchez. I'm Amy Traden. If you don't follow us on the gram, you fucking should. We're at another fucking horror podcast. You can find me at pent-up girl Mo.
0: You can find me at lobotomy. And that's lobot period Amy.
1: Every six episode, we do a true listener tales episode where we read your fucking crazy stories. And if you have them, please email us at another fucking horror podcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking. Guys, we're so obsessed with you. Thanks for being rad as fuck. Thanks for listening. Keep it cute. Keep it
0: creepy. Bye. Bye.